Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 34 of the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I have some really exciting news before I jump into the content. My book, Make Dementia Your Bitch, An Easy Guide to Understanding and Managing Dementia-Driven Behaviors, is now for sale on Amazon. If you look at the show notes, you will see that there's a link for those of you who want to check out my book and then possibly order a copy. You can get it in Kindle or in print as a paperback. On the other hand, I am excited to offer my listeners the possibility of getting their own free copy, their own free autographed copy. And how did this happen, you ask? Well, I'm offering a podcast challenge. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to rate and review my podcast on your favorite platform. Then email me a screenshot before Friday, March 11th at 5 p.m. Central Time U.S. The email to send it is rita.jablonski at gmail.com. And my email is also in the show notes. I will select three winners who will receive a signed autographed copy of the book. And I will announce those winners during episode 37, which will be dropped Sunday afternoon, March 13th, 2022. So jump into that podcast challenge today. Also, I want to send a special shout out to a dementia respite caregiver from Cambridge, Ontario in Canada, who was nice enough to send me a message on my website. Maria, if you are listening, thank you so much for your kind words. And honestly, the message you sent me, that would be an awesome review. Hint, hint. Not saying you have an unfair advantage, but not saying you don't. Okay, everybody, I can't wait to dive into today's content in which I unpack information about two common categories of medications that are used in people living with dementia. The acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, say that three times fast, and the mantine. Let's get started. This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. So the first thing I'd like to talk about are the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Acetylcholine is very important for the making and retaining of memories. In a brain without dementia, certain nerve cells constantly make chemicals like acetylcholine. Then other neurons secrete enzymes that break down the acetylcholine these very same neurons 
suck up the raw materials and manufacture new acetylcholine. So this process really makes sense because it results in a fresh supply of acetylcholine at all times. The brain cells function, if you will, like an air purifier, continuously providing a ready batch of fresh neurochemicals. That's what happens in a brain without any neurodegeneration. And that's what's happening right now in my brain, hopefully, and yours. Our brain is constantly making new batches of fresh acetylcholine, so we are on top of our game. On the other hand, in a brain with dementia, the neurons are dying. As the number of healthy neurons decrease, the level of fresh acetylcholine also drops because there are fewer healthy neurons to make the acetylcholine. At the same time, the neurons whose job it is to secrete the enzymes to break down the acetylcholine, they're still doing their job. If I could stop the first set of neurons from breaking down the acetylcholine, I could temporarily keep the acetylcholine levels higher, maybe even boost the levels for a little while. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's literally what the cholinesterase inhibitors do. And I'm going to use denepazil as the example because denepazil is one of the most well-known of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Denepazil manages to keep the level of acetylcholine higher than the number of healthy cells making it by blocking the breakdown of acetylcholine. And a little side note here, you'll hear me say acetylcholine, you'll hear me say acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, you will also hear me say choline esterase inhibitors. Acetylcholine and choline are often used interchangeably when talking about this class of medications. In this situation, acetylcholine and choline are referring to the same thing. So I don't mean to confuse you, and I'm really bad at swapping back and forth. But going back to denepazil, denepazil blocks the breakdown by blocking the neurons from squirting out the enzymes that break down the acetylcholine, which is awesome. Here's the issue, though. It's a temporary fix. Denepazil does not fix the process that's causing neurons to die in the brain. It's just temporarily boosting the levels of acetylcholine so that the level of acetylcholine is always higher than the current number of neurons who can make it. But acetylcholine over time does go bad. It, it literally, we call it degrading and it falls apart over months. So even though the denepazil keeps the level of acetylcholine a smidge higher than the level it would be without the medication, the levels do still drop over time. At some point, the level of acetylcholine drops to a new low. 
this is where you will see that the person living with dementia starts having more memory problems and also more problems doing things and caring for themselves. So that's what's going on with, or that's why Denepazil works. So a little bit more about Denepazil. Denepazil is approved for mild, moderate, and severe Alzheimer's dementia. It can be prescribed for people with vascular dementia, even though previous research findings reported inconsistent results with vascular dementia. Here's the thing though, many people have both vascular dementia and Alzheimer's dementia. Depending on how the people were screened and what diagnostic criteria were used, this could explain why in certain studies, Denepazil worked better for some people compared to others. The usual dosage is 10 milligrams a day. However, it can be given as high as 23 milligrams a day. But here's the issue. Higher dosages cause more side effects, but without added benefit. What does that mean? It means after, if you go above 10 milligrams a day, you're not going to notice any additional improvement in cognitive functioning, in uh, cognitive abilities, or anything else. But you will notice an upsurge in the side effects. So where I'm going with this is the side effects are dose dependent, the benefits are not. So you, you really shouldn't see the 23 milligram dosage. I have, and it's normally from neurologists who are not familiar with dementia and aren't familiar with this medication. And it's not totally their fault. I do this for a living, so I'm in the literature a lot. But if I have a neurologist who's your garden variety neurologist and, and is out somewhere where he or she is it for the population, and that person's trying to figure out how to deal with epilepsy and headaches and all the other gamut of neurological conditions, they're going to look up Aricet and in the medication insert that comes with the medication, or if they look up there in their database, it says <clears throat> you can give it up to 23 milligrams daily, but nope, not a good idea. Also, denepazil can often result in improvement of what's called neuropsychiatric behaviors like agitation, arguing, and care refusals. But the effect of denepazil on these behaviors in people who are 85 years of age or older, isn't that noticeable. In some art research articles and in some sources, there's even statements like, you won't see any benefit in people 85 years of age or older. I know that's what's out there in the research, in the literature. But if I have a person who's 85, I'm not going to automatically say, oh, you turned 85, we're taking you off. And I'll get into that in, in the next couple of slides about, about age and when you should, if and when you should stop Denepazil. Okay. Ah, 
you usually start it with five milligrams daily for six weeks and then 10 milligrams daily. And that's because of the gastrointestinal side effects that I am going to talk about in a second. But what I want to say before I forget is that denepazil is usually not appropriate for people with frontotemporal dementia because these individuals usually have normal levels of acetylcholine. That's not the issue that they're having. Denepazil in these cases can create an acetylcholine-driven delirium, which is a really exaggerated confusional state, hallucinations, everything. It's a problem. But this is where getting the correct diagnosis is important because there are people with Alzheimer's dementia who appear to act like they have frontotemporal disease. And this is called frontotemporal variant Alzheimer's dementia. Whole other topic. I'm just throwing that out there. Now, the common side effects of cholinesterase inhibitors like denepazil include, or rather the most common ones, are the ones involving the gut. This is nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And you can reduce the reaction in the stomach by starting with five milligrams for about six weeks so that the body gets used to it and giving the medication on a full stomach after a, and I say good meal, a solid meal. And by that, I don't mean a piece of dry toast and a sip of coffee, a substantive breakfast with adequate protein and fat. Eggs, bacon, oatmeal with maybe some protein, scrambled egg, enough fat and protein that you can buffer the stomach. Other side effects include what's called bradycardia or slow pulse, dizziness, fainting, also known as syncope, tremors, which is worse in people with Parkinson's disease, and which is why rivastigmine, another type of cholinesterase inhibitor, may be a better choice in this situation. And it is FDA approved for use in people with Parkinson's disease, dementia. And a final adverse event is mu muscle weakness. And these side effects are the results of the medication stimulating the cholinergic receptors outside of the brain. Because you have acetylcholine, not just in the brain, you have it in your whole body. And you have receptors that affect how fast things move through your gut and or how slow it moves. And you have receptors that tell the heart to slow down or beat fast, muscles to relax or to constrict. And when you take a medicine that results in higher levels of acetylcholine, you can be hitting these cholinergic receptors and causing these adverse events. I know you're all sitting there thinking, hmm, didn't realize we were going to have pharmacology today, but this is all good stuff to know. And it's also good stuff to know when you need to advocate for your loved one living with dementia. Okay, the next thing I want to talk, or the next medication I want to talk about is rivastigmine. And like denepazil, rivastigmine is used for people living 
with mild to moderate dementia. Rivastigmine is available in pill form, liquid form, and patch form. The dosage for the pill and liquid forms range from 1.5 milligrams twice a day up to 6 milligrams twice a day. Your healthcare provider will can, will recommend the dosage and if it needs to go up, usually it's increased by one and a half milligrams every two weeks. So when these medicines are increased, they're stair-stepped up. If your family member is taking the capsule, don't crush it. Ask your provider for the liquid form. And the liquid form can be given straight or mixed with a small amount, two to three ounces of water, soda, or cold fruit juice. And when you mix it, give it to them. Don't let it sit around. The manufacturer recommends that the rivastigmine not sit in another liquid for more than four hours because the, the liquid starts to interact with it and it breaks down. On the other hand, from a practical standpoint, you really don't want liquids laced with these type of meds around the house because someone else may accidentally pick up the glass of fruit juice or soda and not realize there's something in it. And then you have a problem. As I indicated earlier in this talk, rivastigmine is the only medicine that is FDA approved for Parkinson's disease, dementia. Okay. I also want to talk about galantamine. Oh, there we go. Galantamine is another member of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitor family. And like rivastigmine, it is available as an immediate acting pill, extended release capsule, and liquid. The dosage is usually 8 milligrams daily for the extended release capsules, which can be increased by 8 milligrams after four weeks for a maximum of 24 milligrams every day. And this medication also needs to be taken with food. The dosage is the same for the immediate acting pill and liquid, but the medication is given twice a day when you're dealing with immediate acting pill and liquid. So for example, a person who's prescribed the short acting pill or the liquid would take four milligrams twice a day instead of the one eight milligram tablet or excuse me, capsule. Now, one of the questions I hear all the time is, when can we stop it? The better question might be if. Once you start an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, you have the person has to keep taking it because if the medication is stopped, all the previous benefit goes away. So let's say I, I have mild cognitive impairment. My provider starts me on denepazil and my acetylcholine levels are at, and I'm just going to make these measurements up. My acetylcholine levels are at a max of hundred. And as my neurons die off, the, my, Acetylcholine levels 
always stay five to 10 units higher than where my neurons are at. So let's say over time, my neurons drop to a level where they would naturally produce 70 units of acetylcholine a day instead of the 100 that makes me function and makes me independent and I only have a couple memory glitches. As long as I'm taking the denepazil, yes, my acetylcholine levels are dropping, but they're dropping from 100, a couple weeks later, 99, a couple weeks later, 98. There's a gentle decline to the point where people living with me may not even notice the subtlety of the decline. But for whatever reason, I go into the hospital for an unrelated issue and they stop all my meds before surgery. And usually that'll happen. Okay, great. You stop all my meds that morning. I have surgery. You need to restart my medicine, my acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, either that night or the next day. But here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes in hospitals, all the medicines are stopped and the denepazil is not restarted. And that's a big mistake because I went into the hospital with my acetylcholine level at around 97, even though my neurons might've been at 75. I don't receive my denepazil. I don't receive my rivastigmine. I don't receive my galantamine. A week passes and all of a sudden the nurses are shocked that I'm more confused, that I'm trying to feed myself and I'm really struggling with this. They may just say, oh, it's delirium brought on by the hospitalization, possibly. But if my denepazil was stopped, my levels of acetylcholine are rapidly going down. So now, after a week or two of not getting my denepazil, maybe two to three weeks of not getting my denepazil, my acetylcholine level is now at 75. It matches where it would normally be given the number of neurons that can make it. Oh, shit. I've suffered a significant decline and even... When my denepazil is restarted, I now my new baseline is 75. I'm not going back up to the 95 I was at before the hospitalization. I've dropped down to 75. Maybe this translates to the fact that before the hospitalization, I could live by myself. I needed my daughter to help with my finances. I needed my son to go shopping with me. But for the most part, I was safe at home. I remembered to feed the animals. I locked the door. I dressed and bathed myself. I made myself food. I was self-sufficient with some glitches. Now I've gone to the point where I cannot be left alone. And this all happened in a matter of weeks because somebody stopped my medication and waited too long. And I'm not trying to sound histrionic. I've seen this happen. So that's the danger of stopping these medicines unless there's some really powerful reason that you need to stop it. So the next question is, and I was taught this, I was taught that 
you give the dementia medications, the acetylcholine esterase inhibitors and the other drug, the mantine that I'm going to talk about in a second, you give these meds until the person is institutionalized. Once the person is bad enough or they, or once the person is at a point where they need a super high level of care that the family can't provide anymore, and they are now in a nursing home. Okay. Take them off all their meds. Here's the experience I had. I had someone who was admitted to the nursing home. This person was at the severe stage, but he could still feed himself. It, it wasn't pretty. We had to help. We had to cut up his food and cue him, but he could still lift the spoon to his mouth and independently feed himself. He also was able to walk around. He didn't talk very much, but he was very cooperative with us and he could do two things. And that was cool. I followed the protocol that I was taught and I worked with a geriatrician and she was like, oh yeah, now that he's here, we can just stop all these meds. Okay. So I stopped all these meds and within three weeks, he could no longer feed himself and he could no longer walk. And at the time I thought to myself, Oh shit. <laughs> was this because I stopped the Dinepazil? And because we didn't know a whole lot, I'm going back a good 30 years here. No, 25. Because we really didn't know as much as we do now, it was the fact that I stopped the Dinepazil and his acetylcholine levels plummeted to a point where he was his he was much more severe than he looked. So that's my cautionary tale. You, you want to be really careful when the decision is discussed. I also see this in hospice. I see someone admitted to hospice and they can still do some things for themselves. They're still talking. They're still somewhat interactive. And the hospice people go, nope, nope, nope. Gotta stop the meds. And the family loses that precious time with their loved one, where their loved one could be engaged. Yes, it was a limited engagement, but that was, it's not for, up to me to say, oh, that's not adequate engagement. No, if that's my mom, I tell you what I have and what I'm willing, what, what's important for me and what's not. So that I'll, I'll stop beating, beating that horse. But if you are at the point where, yes, everyone's in agreement, we need to take your loved one off of the Dinepazil, it does not have to be tapered. It can be stopped immediately. Some clinicians think that a taper is needed because of the recommendation that the Dinepazil be started at five milligrams for four to six weeks before increasing to the 10 milligram dosage. But this recommendation was made because participants in the clinical studies who followed the slower route to 10 milligrams daily had fewer side effects than those whose meds were increased after a week on the medicine. Now, if there is a concern about a decline in function or an increase in agitation, because that can happen too when Dinepazil is stopped, you can drop the Dinepazil from 10 milligrams to five for a week and watch your loved one. If you start to see, if there's no new problems or behaviors, you stop the medicine. On the other hand, if the decrease in dosage is resulting in an uptick in behaviors, for example, 
the individual was walking independently, but now you're noticing that there's some unsteadiness after the dosage was reduced, it may be prudent to return to the 10 milligram dosage. We're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, I'll talk about Mimanti. I'm going to talk about Mimantine, trade name Nemenda, which is an N-methyl D-aspartate, hence NMDA, receptor antagonist. An antagonist means this medicine blocks particular receptors from being stimulated by other neurochemicals. Why would I want that? Chronic activation of MDA receptors over time contrib contributes to shrinkage of the brain matter, which is a process known as excitotoxicity. You can stimulate brain cells so much that they get overworked and they die. And that process, again, I love the word excitotoxicity. This excitotoxic pathway is also thought to the changes in cognition and personality that are often seen in people who survive traumatic brain injuries. Just a little fun fact there. Because what happens in people with traumatic brain injuries is as the brain is bounced around in the skull, there's parts of the brain cells of the neurons called axons, the, the skinny part. And what happens is the axons literally twist when the brain's being bounced around. And if you think of a sponge filled with water and you take that sponge and you wring it out and all the liquid comes out, that's what happens in the brain. As the brain is twisted, all of these neurochemicals get squeezed out of the neurons and the neurons are hit with way too much, way too many chemicals in too short a time. Excitotoxicity. Now, memantine is approved for use in moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. When the cognitive, how we do it in practice is when cognitive test scores decline below the 66th percentile, for example, less than 20 on say the MMSE or other instruments that we use, that's a raw cutoff for introducing memantine. And I have to say this, published research is difficult to interpret as it was done over time because of a couple of reasons. First of all, older studies were older, are difficult to interpret because of the difficulty in diagnosing particular types of dementia. Also, a lot of these publications were funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Conflict of interest? Maybe. On the other hand, when I prepared for this talk, I dove into the literature and I looked for things called meta-analyses. Meta-analyses are pretty cool. These are people who contact the authors of published reports and ask for their data. And then they take all the data and they pull it together and they rerun the analyses. And what happens is 
you get larger sample sizes where you are less likely to have statistical problems. And I also looked at things called integrated reviews in which people will dive deep into published research and synthesize it and help explain why you may be seeing contradictory findings or why these researchers made one conclusion and these researchers didn't quite have the same results. So in my dive into the literature, I noticed that there's enough out there that shows that memantine can in fact slow down the loss of cognition in people who do have Alzheimer's dementia, which is what the drug was originally developed for, but also it can slow down the loss of cognition in people who have vascular dementia. And again, a lot of people with vascular dementia usually have coexisting Alzheimer's as well. Not everybody, but we're seeing the two of those happening together more and more. And there's some reasons for that's beyond the scope of this particular talk, but I'll have to revisit it with later blogs and later podcasts. Now, even though the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors often help with dementia-related behaviors, memantine really doesn't. It hasn't been shown to have any positive impact on the behaviors. Also, monotherapy, which is memantine alone, has been shown to be better than nothing. Great. And it is usually combined with denepazil. So people are started with denepazil or another acetylcholinesterase inhibitor at the mild stage. And as they hit moderate, you uh, layer on the memantine. And when you look at the research, the findings can be mixed. Some studies show the two of them together were better than just one, just a deposit alone or just memantine alone. Some of the studies contradicted it, but it is clinical practice to put them both together because let's face it, we don't have a whole lot of options and I'd rather try something and give the person the benefit of the doubt and see if it works rather than withhold medicine and find out I could have, I, 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 I could have fixed something and I didn't. And while I did talk about memantine with being shown to be effective for people with vascular dementia, if you look at Lewy body and frontotemporal, the data is real, the data are really limited. So clinicians may try it to see if the person derives benefit and if they don't, you take them off of it. Some of the side effects include constipation, dizziness, headache, high blood pressure, and somnolence, that is feeling sleepy. Okay, so when to stop? Like the situation with denepazil and other acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, when a person with dementia requires placement and is no longer walking independently or engaging in any self-care activities, memantine may be considered no longer needed. But again, if the individual is able to walk independently or can feed him herself 
or is a little more verbal than you would think, stopping the mantine could result in the loss of these abilities. But here's where the titration comes into play. Mimantine has to be stair stepped down. Just like when you start Mimantine, you start with five milligrams once a day for seven days. Then you do five milligrams once in the morning, once at night for week two. And then week three is 10 in the morning, five at night. And week four is 10 and 10. And I'm talking about the short acting. If you're going to use the long acting stuff, you have your seven milligram extended release for a week and then your 14 for a week and so forth. And, and on you go, on, uh, and that's what you keep doing until you reach the therapeutic dosage of memantine for that person. If you're going to stop memantine, you decrease in the same way. If I have someone taking 10 milligrams twice a day, for the first week, they'll get their 10 milligrams in the morning, but only five in the evening. And we do that for a week. And then week two, it's five in the morning and five in the evening and so forth. But here's the thing. What, by decreasing the mantine in that stair-step fashion, it gives you the opportunity to notice if a decrease starts to cause problems or new behaviors, new, when I say new behaviors, new deficits in thinking and doing. So again, for example, if the individual starts to have trouble walking when the memantine dosage was dropped from 10 milligrams daily to five milligrams daily, the dosage should go back to the previous one, it should go back to 10 milligrams daily. Let me say that again. Memantine should be discontinued in the reverse order of how it was started. If a significant decline in ability is observed during the weaning off process, the person should return to the previous dosage level of the medicine, not the full dosage, they return to the previous dosage. So if I had someone on, I got them down to say five milligram in the morning and five milligrams at night. And then week three, we take away the, the five milligrams at night and they're just getting five milligrams in the morning. And I'm starting to see that person's having trouble walking or they're having new limitations that they didn't have two days ago. That's not the dementia, that is we're taking off the meds. So at that point, I go back up to the previous regimen, which, which would be five milligrams in the morning, five milligrams at night, not the original 10 and 10. So I didn't mean to belabor that, I just wanted to make sure that I was being clear. Now families, once we start these meds, when we first initiate them, you may fail to see progress and you may be asking whether or not your family member should be taking Dinepazil or one of its cousins, Mimantine, both or either. And this is a valid, these are valid questions. 
And the ideal situation is for the prescribing clinician to have a conversation with you and your family member, if possible, about the goals of care and the risk benefit of continuing or stopping either medications. And once again, I offer this information as education and as a way for caregivers to ask questions and advocate for their loved ones living with dementia. I will be back next week with an emphasis on antidepressants and antipsychotics. And I know that information is dense and heavy, but I also have some of this information in my blog post that you may find helpful. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.